0: Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your host Josiah and for the first time ever, I am recording a podcast live and in person. Uh, It's not because of COVID or quarantine. My co-host just lives in Arizona and I live in Washington. But I have the privilege and honor to record with a friend named Ryan Fasani. And uh, well, Ryan, just say hi. Why don't you uh, just say hi and tell us about the beautiful space that we're in right now.
1: (laughs) Yes, we find ourselves in a uh, music closet at one of our friend's churches and... As Josiah said, my name is Ryan Fasani, we live a few hours apart, and luckily we have the shared space between us about halfway, So,
0: and of course I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> it's so interesting to think uh, about all the things that have gone through, uh, through the filter of what needs to happen or what should or shouldn't be the way we do things in this past year, but I never thought that I'd be primarily recording a podcast through the interweb and that for the first time ever, post-pandemic, I would be recording something in person in the back closet of a church. So that's pretty That's pretty special. Uh, Ryan, I, we have so much to talk about. I'm not going to lament the fact that uh, my co-host isn't here. I'll just say I guess he decided not to fly up here to make your acquaintance for, for this two-hour, however long we talk, podcast. But I, I want to get right into it by asking you a fun question.
1: Shoot, I'm ready.
0: I mean, I, I, I've gone back and forth between do I just, do I try to explain Ryan on a podcast and say, I know him because of this, this, and this, or do I just ask this question? So I'm just going to ask this question. Ryan, uh, what do you do? <laughs> 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 I, I love that that's your facial expression. It's just like, uh, where do I start? So yeah,
1: Ryan, what do you do? What do you do for a living? The reason that that's a curious question is not because I haven't been asked a thousand times. It's because the answer changes regularly and not because I change necessarily, but because it's always dependent on the audience. But since you and I are very familiar with similar vocational trajectories, I am a pastor. So does that mean that on a Sunday
0: morning you're in a sanctuary preaching a sermon every week? Now you're being difficult.
1: (laughs) Um, More specifically, I'm a church planter. And to drill down even further, I'm a postmodern church planter, which means I'm really sensitive to some of the pressures uh, in the 21st century on church planters and pastors. And so in that we're sensitive to some of those pressures, we are trying to way up north in Bellingham, I'll add, bellingham Washington planting and empowering those folks that are planting with us to plant small organic churches and homes mostly so
0: aside from pastoring you do a couple other things on, on occasion and as much as you want to talk about it now is great I'm sure we'll get to some of it but another thing I wanted to make sure that we talk about is you recently wrote something pretty near and dear to your heart uh, you wrote a book it's it's a really interesting book I'm going to confess I still haven't gotten through it. it. It actually takes some emotional work for me to get through it, but you want to tell us just a little bit about that as well?
1: Yeah, here, here's the 30 seconds on my, my latest writing project. Um, June 13th, I'll uh, we'll be publishing my first book, which is a theological memoir about the last four days of my father's life. He passed away five years ago, um, almost to the day of ALS, and I happened to be with him for those last four days. And my grieving process became what is now consuming hope, a father and son in four days to live, which like I said, will be coming out here in a couple weeks or a couple weeks from this recording.
0: So, which is, which is why it's hard for me to read. We have a lot of interesting similarities with yeah. sort of the, the dealing with parents and sickness and, and loss, but I've read most of it now. <laughs> I haven't finished it, but again, it, it takes some doing for me. I was like, that's a little too close to home. I'm still pretty close to, to hasn't even been a year since I lost my mom. So there's so many of those things. Like I'm not quite prepared to to rationalize, reconcile, you know, I'm not, I can't even go there just yet. Um,
1: But to to be fair, to be fair, this morning I was reading a portion of the book because I I read a a weekly or biweekly newsletter to kind of a growing uh, base of folks that are interested in my writing. And I wanted to refresh my memory about part of the book and so I reread a section towards the end of the book and I was in tears at 6:30 a.m. before breakfast, you know, sort of a wreck in my office and it still surprises me to this day that you know the material that I wrestled through in writing the book still is is heavy and tough to deal with.
0: Well, it's interesting to me, I think part of why you wrote it, I'm going to speculate, has to do with the the cathartic therapeutic portion of just kind of putting things out there writing mm-hmm. things down organizing thoughts trying to figure out what do I do with this this is heavy this is real this is also just my life so mm-hmm. I'm sure some of it you know it feels like you've resolved it to some extent but then you come back to it and realize wait wow there's still some things that I'm I'm processing through and it's still just as heavy a thing as it once was Yeah,
1: writing for me is always sort of part meditation and part construction right it's an artistic piece i'm trying to construct if if i'm you know making an argument i'm piecing it together logically but there's always this sort of undercurrent of meditation right which is part of the reason i like the craft of arting because of arting i like the craft of writing because it's so much a process of internal introspection and in some cases a, a process of And this project, like, epitomizes both of those, right? Like, I'm trying to make a clean case for a particular experience that I had and convey it to an uh, and convey that to an audience. But at the same time, I mean, it it's a 200 plus page meditation on (laughs) death and dying, right? Like, not a light subject. Um, Casual, right? And but but it's also what makes you know, the project's so meaningful, right? Is it, I mean, it really is an extended prayer. And, and for me, you know, in the kind of on the heels of my dad's passing, that pr- the prayer took a particular form and it was me jousting and dancing and at times wrestling with the Emmaus road story. Mm. Right. Um, and I got into a whole host of conversations with those two folks um, on the road to Emmaus about loss and yeah. suffering and death, and uh, yeah, and here we are in completion of the project. But you know, writing projects live on, especially when you pick them up after a while and read them again. So, so in case it hasn't occurred to our listeners to
0: this point yet, like there's so much to just the, the initial who is Ryan that I'm trying to tease out <laughs> at the very beginning. We go from he's a pastor, but. What kind of pastor is he? And we're, we're going to get to that more, I'm sure. He also wrote some... I mean, for the sake of clarity, he, he's, a, he's an author. He, he went to school. He, as you wrote in the notes for this show, he graduated from Azusa Pacific 100 years ago. <laughs> I think that might not be accurate. This, yeah. is the, this, this is called the Millennial Pastor Podcast. Sometimes we get really nitpicky, but I mean, I don't really get that nitpicky. I think you would qualify as an Xennial.
1: Is that fair? I often refer to myself as a millennial grandparent. <laughs> like, there's so much I identify with, but at the same time, man, I'm bald and I have a little bit of gray in my beard. So you're you're on the cusp. Like, I'm a geriatric millennial.
0: There we go. <laughs> you went to Vanderbilt. You got a master's of divinity, as you say, 50 years ago-ish. So millennial grandparent. We'll just play with that. We'll let there be some ambiguity sure. with just how old you are, but. But part of what I also want to uh, do on this podcast, besides just worry about ages and stuff like that, is share stories. And you said something already in this sort of like overlong introduction that mm-hmm. that I think is maybe the exact reason perfectly articulated by you as to why I wanted to you, you to be on this podcast and share your story. You said there's something meaningful there, right? And so in the midst of these conversations already, there's this thread that, you know, even just knowing you as long as I've known you, which isn't super long. I think we've met we met a couple years ago, maybe, mm-hmm. since we mm-hmm. just happened to be on the same district. And we happened to meet each other at district assembly and start to scheme about all the things we wanted to do and <laughs> all this common ground. Like, huh, that's interesting. Yeah. I need to talk to this person more. The, the thread that I would say is there's some meaningfulness in your life that has determined why you are the way you are like there's there's some thoughtfulness there's some experiences you've had in life there is some decisions you have made and it's not just kind of this knee-jerk necessary reaction thing it's there's intentionality there's meaning to some of the the decisions you've made in life and and it's funny like the reason i asked you at the very beginning ryan what do you do is because i actually get asked like hey what what's that fasani guy doing (laughs) up there we actually have a weird connection between our our two vocational Assignments. Uh, We we actually have overlap with some of the people we work with, which is really interesting. Um, And so I get questioned all the time, like, so what's going on up there? I'm like, you should ask him. That's a real big, long question. (laughs) So I don't know if we should even jump into that. Actually, yeah, I think we should at this point. Let's let's just have some fun and and explore. Because at the moment, the reason I asked is because you're a pastor, church plantee, but the way you're doing that, Mm -hmm. is mildly unconventional, maybe. Maybe just, like, slightly unconventional. So I don't know if you have another 30-second... Well, actually, if you showed up on a given day, I'm doing this. I don't know if, like, each day of the week looks different, because... A traditional pastoral, you know, picture people might have is Sundays preaching, Mondays in the office, and through, you know through maybe Thursday, Friday, Saturday, maybe they get the day off. I don't really know, but don't they only really work on Sunday, anyways? So. For
1: about an hour and a half. Yeah, yeah. So
0: anyway, whatever that is. So, what does it look like to church plant pastor right now, up up where you live in Bellingham?
1: Yeah, um, I, you know, the easy way to answer that truthfully—not in 30 seconds, but maybe like. 90 seconds is, um, I, I split my time pretty evenly three ways, um, which will likely splinter into three different conversations, but here it is in, in 90 seconds or less. One third of my time, I am a sort of bona fide church planter. I do church planting things, right? I spend a lot of time, you know, um, Making intentional connections with people of interest and people of peace around our county and exploring commonalities with people that have a heart for kingdom ministry that have a heart for alternative church communities that is in their shape and, and form um, and then especially with with folks that that are that show a sign of interest in being resourced and planting home based or organic churches that's a third of my time a third of my time um, I spend cultivating a market farm, which is a seven-acre, very diverse farm with a small goat dairy, <clears throat> excuse me, a small goat dairy, um, and as of yesterday, 48 varieties of vegetables. Um, and my, my wife is, is sort of the expert in herbs, and so we have a whole permaculture set up around our house. I, deal, I manage the market farm. And then my kids all have responsibilities with animals and husbanding, husbanding those animals um, as a form of sort of small businesses. But so a third of my time is used uh, farming. And that is, of course, not accidental. Right. Like if you caught me on the right day, maybe wearing my my mucker boots and a pitchfork in my hand, I might tell you that I'm planting a church farm or excuse me, a farm church, because the 30 percent of time that I, engage in those activities. I'm doing it in a way that is setting my farm space, the land that I steward up as a classroom. And that's, that's particularly because in that classroom, we learn what it means to participate in the kingdom, right? So it's an act of facilitating a space for discipleship for my kids, A, but for anybody else who engages us and participates in our gatherings in that space, Now, 30% of my time on top of that, I'm a writer and not as just an act of sort of, you know, producing prose or something like that. Um, Part of the discipline of writing for me is capturing this unique journey um, that we're on in church planting. Part of that is cultivating and creating new ways, new discipleship material, which is an extension of my other 60% of my work. Um, And part of that is telling the stories Um, along the way too, right? So for me, you know, sometimes that looks like contributing to a blog that I write daily. Sometimes that looks like writing book-length projects. And other times that is a collaborative work with other people in our district that are trying to write new um, Christian education material or discipleship material. So it's it's a little more than 90 seconds, but essentially (laughs) 30%, 30%, 30%. I try to sort of schedule out my week that way. So a third... I'm gonna
0: see how good at go listening it. I was. A third market farm, a third writing, and a third church planning networking. That's accurate. I'm gonna. I wanted to do that last. That last one because that's what I want to jump into. Sure. You started off kind of conventionally, maybe, uh, or did you start off right off as a from school into church planning? Did you Did you go right into that, or did you go into traditional ministry?
1: I um, when I came out. Of, well, I've. If I back way up, um, I've done the the um, high school ministry. Actually, I did middle school ministry, high school ministry, college young adult ministry. But that was that was pre divinity school. When I sort of officially graduated and was ordained, which was about the same time, um, I kind of tripped into church planting, and I did that not because. <clears throat> I had some massive strategy at work, or something like that, and it wasn't even because I had some theo- deep theological convictions that churches needed to look differently. And I definitely didn't do it because I thought I was really cool and wore <laughs> skinny enough jeans at the time, or something like that. And I could sort of build a congregation. It's yeah, Exactly. Whatever, Ryan. Um, <laughs> I uh, I I did it because the work that I was doing was you might one might call parachurch ministry. I was the director the director of a nonprofit ministry in urban Nashville, and we were doing food and food-related work in downtown Nashville. And they, there was people communed around the community gardens and the community orchard and the pizza oven that we put in and the food banks that I managed. And at some point I woke up one morning, um, about a year or two into that, and I asked my leadership team, are we not participating in the body of Christ here, like, like in a really like concrete way on Wednesday afternoon when we have this hot meal? What is that? Are we church planting and hiding it, <laughs> or are we doing you know compassion ministry and avoiding certain as, certain aspects of church planting? Anyhow, you can imagine where this conversation went over the course of nine months or a year, and um, before you knew it, we had. A bona fide church, like congregation that met under the umbrella of a larger church in urban Nashville, um, and we ate around tables at a at a warm meal, and that congregation, the demographic of that converse conversation of that congregation was about half homeless, um, a twenty five percent college young adult, and twenty five percent working poor. So we had this really eclectic, diverse, racially and economically diverse community. And it was like we literally just kind of tripped into it one day. And that congregation, you know, which is one of the um, one of the fruits of ministry that I'm literally the most proud of, mostly because I got my hands out of it and, and gave it to somebody that was better at it than I was, <laughs> was that that congregation still exists here about 10 years later. as this really robust and eclectic community in urban Nashville. Um, why so, did you why did you leave what did you go to next You know the <laughs> the really short answer is I got really tired of fundraising <laughs> Right I was the I was the director of you know the executive of a of a nonprofit that was growing pretty quickly and my role literally became 95% fundraising and it just blitzed me it really did I wanted to be on the ground I wanted to be you know, community de- doing community development work. I wanted to be in the soil. I mean, we had a network of I think nine community gardens at the time. Hmm. Some at school properties, some of them at church properties and stuff. Um, and we were looking to expand that. and a full time farm manager, and it's like I envied part of his job. You know, um, the honorableness and, of coming home with dirt under your nails. Yeah, like you know, you hear that metaphorically all the time, but I was literally envious of it. And 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 I re- just the grind of, of fundraising and trying to convince the people at my home church down the street that this was a noble work to give to just sort of broke me over time, truthfully. And so I got to asking myself why. And I, one of them was part of that answer was vocational, right? Like, I, I think I need to be working the other way. I need to be cultivating a worshipful community that practices all of these skill sets that I've picked up in the nonprofit world. Anyhow, so my family started, you know, discerning that, and then started looking around. Lo and behold, we tried to go back west where we're from, which is California, originally, and overshot that by about five thousand miles, <laughs> and ended up on the Big Island of Hawaii <laughs> as a senior pastor.
0: Quite, so, quite an overshot. Yeah, I don't know if I know too many, uh, especially younger pastors that start in sort of the unconventional church planning nonprofit world. And then transition to lead pastoring. I mean, so much of our stereotypical, I don't know, hot takes from from even our own generation and those older than us is oh well they start off in traditional organized religion and then they hate everything about it, so they wanna go and do the, the organic, non conventional, non profit, whatever. So I I don't know too many too many folks that have done it in that order, which is really intriguing to me. So you you you're in Nashville then you end up in Hawaii now you're the lead pastor of mm-hmm. of a fairly traditional church
1: is that very traditional church I mean traditional in that is close to like traditional as this like part Polynesian part sure. you know, transplant church can be um, which actually the, the parts of that church the aspects of that community that were the most beloved or the the sort of atypical parts that were really an adoption from the Polynesian community that we were welcomed so warmly into, Um, which is interesting, right? Because you would think that the church, specifically that church, would want to, you know, to orient itself towards Southeast Asian Polynesian community, um, because apparently that's the largest hurdle, right, to get over. Um, but, But it wasn't, that wasn't the case. The church was really wanting to sort of veer the other way and adopt, like, all that was working back in the mainland. You know, and, and it was a real challenge for me there because I had two things that I wanted to do essentially, right? I wanted to take all this know-how that I learned in community development and compassion ministry work, and I wanted to like inject it with with no reduction, like the whole thing into the life of a community, a worshiping community. And when I got there, the second thing was, and I want this thing to make sense. For what we might call now the indigenous leadership that was already there, or the native, you know, the native leadership, which for us was predominantly Samoan Tongan community, yeah, and the community I would say resisted both of those very strongly, um, and again, so it became this uphill struggle to unfortunately <laughs> try to convince the church um, that we <laughs> like. All, all of the resource and assets we need to be a, a legitimate Polynesian-based, Polynesian-led community are already here if we just orient our resources and energy that way. Which was sort of ironic. I get it. Bald, young, white kid. You know <laughs> what I mean? You know, seminary grad. <laughs> like, trying to convince a church in Hawaii to sort of focus its energies towards the Poly- Polynesian community. But, But the energy and the movement and the lean of that community was... Towards what was, what was cool, right, and what what you know what looked more like Hillsong, like if you if if you look back in the timeline, it literally what was cool at Hillsong, right? Like, so was that in the early two thousands or something? It was like ten years ago, right? Yeah, like, sure. Um, and it was, and, and you know, and then the church down like on the on the on the on the main front, you know, down by the hotels was another young white guy, and they were doing it like that, and it was cool and growing, and it was just this ever like demanding. Um, like lure of cool, I'm thinking. But but we're we're the most isolated you know, chain of islands in, on the entire globe, and half of our congregation is already Samoan Tongue, and Like, is there a bigger wake up call than that? And so it, you know, it was a real wrestling match. And and I'll add, you know, there are astronomical rates of um, habit based or chronic disease related to diet. On mm. the islands, um, and here I came with this, you know, you know, this tool, this skill set of growing healthy foods, and so I immediately like found the aunties and uncles in the community that could teach me about native foods sure. and what grew well, and soil health and management, you know, of, of um, stewarding and management of soil there, and seasons. Believe it or not, there are seasons in Hawaii, but, but uh, you know how to navigate the seasons and the and and such, and so I. Quickly adopted all this sort of like ancient knowledge about, you know, about growing in that area. And we transformed that church property into this like, like this permaculture mecca, right? Like oh. seven varieties of bananas. And we cultivated our own, created our own cultivar of papayas. And there was food everywhere. It was this beautiful, like, representation of what you could grow off of three acres of a church property. Um, and there just never was buy-in, huh? Right. Who was doing the growing? Was it primarily you? It was primarily me and, and one of my staff members, and, and a couple neighbors that didn't have much interest in sort of you know the going-ons of the church property any day but the days that we we had hose in our hands and we're harvesting. So
0: interesting. so you go from church plant Nashville doing some really interesting urban ministry, food's there. Church, like the third, the third, the third thing, right? Yep. You got food, exactly, and you got uh, you got church plant stuff cooking, right? Mm-hmm. And trying to network these people, trying to combine food in the mix, which seems to be a universally buyinable thing, I yeah. would assume. Everyone likes to eat, and if you eat fresh food, you realize how much better it is than going and buying processed, prepackaged stuff in the grocery store, and it could maybe even be more affordable. Yep. Uh, once you're out there, though, it's starting to sound like some of the, the age-old frustrating, and maybe not exclusively millennial pastory things, mm-hmm. like just traditional church pastory things, start to take root a little bit of this, wow, there's all this work, and there's not that much buy-in, and, and there's sort of this, man, I don't have the help that I want or need yeah. on that isolation, and especially if you overshot California by however many thousands of miles away. <laughs> like, you're all the way over there, so I want to understand a little bit. This is this is interesting. I. I, it's hard to say, it's not like we have a census for our listeners, but we have a good amount of young pastors that, Mm -hmm. that reach out to us and tell us about having similar situations. And a lot of times, I don't know if it's just kind of this subtle effort from the denomination at church rejuvenation, Mm -hmm. like maybe they just think, Hey, this congregation could really benefit from a young pastor. But at the same time, it might tank it, but that church is struggling already. So Mm -hmm. what do we have to lose? Let's, let's try it out. So, um, this church, I don't know if, if it was fairly healthy before you got there or not, but um, I'm just intrigued to know, what were the conversations leading up to you being hired? What was the interview process like? Like Were these things that you brought to the table that they had some buy-in with, or was it one of those things where, yeah, that sounds really interesting, get here, and then, oh, maybe there's not as much help as we once suspected there could be.
1: Yeah, you know, in in retrospect, I think there were there were two things that I brought to the table, um, well, three that I brought to the table that w- that made me like the candidate that you know got all the votes, if you will. Um, one of them was the obvious, which is like the classic young pastor has lots of energy. Oh, and he has kids. He definitely can attract young people and young families, right? Like bring him in, and he'll just he's just. It's like a magnet, right? Like they just come, you know, they're attracted to him. which is, it's never that clean and simple and ne- truthfully doesn't work, right? Um, minus some strange situations. But then again, you look further into it and it's always something else, right? Like a concentrated effort in reaching so-and-so or such-and-such people or certain demographic. But the fact that I was young or the fact that anybody's young... Is, does not necessarily bring young people to the church. And this podcast is helping uncover that there's a whole host of reasons those people won't come to the church, regardless of the age of the pastor. Absolutely. So, but that was one thing I had, quote unquote, going for me. The other thing that I had, or there was two other things. One was um, that the, the church was aware enough to know the need of, of the next leader to be cross-culturally sensitive and aware. And so I came to the interview and, and you'd be surprised or maybe you wouldn't be surprised but very few young pastors have that experience, cross-cultural experience minus, you know, maybe missionary kids or something like that but I had that unique urban um, urban ministry experience where most of my congregation was were African-American and Latino um, and Truth be told, most of the people I encountered on a daily basis um, were poor and of those ethnic backgrounds, and so I had economic diverse kind of experiences in ministry, and then I had this sort of racial, racial and ethnic diversity and 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 such, and so that, so I was like pegged as this sort of like cross cultural kind of young guru, which was just so ironic, right? <laughs> because it wasn't couldn't be further from the truth, but and then but the third thing, the third thing was that. They could tell right away um, that I had like this disproportionate kind of zeal about family discipleship, um, and this may come up later in the podcast at more at length. But we've always alternatively educated our, our children, um, and which basically means we've homeschooled. But if you Fault. If you came over to our house, you'd notice in five minutes we don't we don't homeschool the way you're imagining, um, and my wife doesn't wear a head covering. <laughs> um, uh, though we did live in Idaho for a little bit, so like, some stereotypes are probably triggering at the moment. Um, but, we'll flesh that out. We'll yeah, flesh that out. Yeah, um, but but it was obvious that like I was so committed to cross generational and youth like robust discipleship for the for the kids. Beyond sort of just like children's programs and stuff like that, and so here you have this young pastor, cross-cultural experience, lots of energy, right? And he wants to focus on kids. Well, look around the church, right? There's kids everywhere around around that particular church, and of course he's going to attract anybody that's between the age of twenty and thirty-five or whatever, you know. And and he worked in urban, you know, an urban ministry. Of course he knows what. Polynesia's like, <laughs> right? So and so, they they brought me over, man, and you know, and in ways unexpected, some of those things translated, right? Like they were absolutely they nailed my um, my deep commitment for shepherding and discipling young people, right? As opposed to sort of entertaining them or. Sort of shuffling them off on the side for the pageant or the show or something like that, but like actually engaging them. I mean, there was, we did a whole long preaching series where the children actually had a voice in the service. And by children, I don't mean like Children's Sunday, I mean like dialogue with kids live as part of the sermon that worked really well, especially in that environment where the kids are very much included. And all things community development. Anyhow, so some things translated really well, but some things didn't so much. But but maybe more importantly than all those, Josiah is there was a deep seated toxicity in that church that 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 was. That created a hurdle for me to jump that was almost infinitely higher than some of the things that you hear are challenging about moving to Hawaii, right? You hear about some of the quote-unquote reverse racism, ter- terrible word, but it is one that's commonly used. Um, you hear about the distance and the, you know, the, the um, island fever and, and such, and, and all of that actually wasn't a challenge. And then for some people, the foods and the this and you know some of those other kind of more minuscule challenges that are actually large, you know, bigger for people's sort of habits. For me, the biggest hurdle, and ended up being like, you know, my doom in the end, were, were unaddressed wounds in that congregation that predated me by years and years, and the and it and it all came to me. The first night I was there, young pastor, I mean, I'm like tickled to even be in my own, like to sit in a chair that actually works, like in an office that doesn't have like four interns and like the way like sort of small nonprofits work right with like yeah. the refrigerator like just like chaos in the in, in the office like i had space i could breathe and you i sit there handed the keys right yeah. like yeah, yeah that exactly moment. the key exactly handed the keys actually they were in the top thin drawer <laughs> there was a set of keys um and in that very drawer oh and And there were bookshelves. Oh my goodness. (laughs) They give me bookshelves, I thought to myself. You know, I couldn't even imagine that I'd have to build these myself. Anyhow, so I had bookshelves, I had a desk, I had a chair that had wheels that actually worked. Like I had arrived. So first night in the office, and I open up that, you know, start checking the drawers like you know, an excited, you know, kid or something, and I pull out the little thin drawer that's always above your thighs when you're sitting at a desk, you know, kind of quote unquote executive desk. And there's a set of keys and a note from the interim pastor. Mm. Excuse me. What I thought was a note from the interim pastor. Oh, no. It was his writing on the front. And I opened it up and it was a photocopy of a letter just before my arrival at a funeral that was hosted at that church. It was a letter that was photocopied and put on all the windshields of the cars. Oh, no. And the content of this letter would would make the most calloused of all human beings cringe right it was scathing and heart-wrenching criticism like personal attacks on people's well-being i mean it was cursing the very goodness of people right and it was like it was just shy of like a Like a complete smear campaign of someone's entire existence. And it targeted two or three people. And it was anonymous, of course, because it always is anonymous. And I realized, like, this is what I was inheriting, right? I was inheriting a church where these types of issues, not that this is necessarily unique. The substance is not necessarily unique. It's in every community. But I was inheriting a church where these types of issues were folded up and passed on. <laughs> they were transferred and not addressed. What a metaphor. They were handed off and not confronted. And I thought, oh, this is, this is going to be uphill. Or as I said earlier, this hurdle is high. Anyhow, the rest of my pastoral ministry there, the rest of my pastoral energies while I was there, were consumed I think with the content of that one letter. That's great. Have you ever heard of
0: the analogy that becoming a pastor of a traditional local congregation is akin to taking over someone else's family reunion. So like it's a family reunion, right? And everyone knows each other, they have a lifetime of drama, beefs, history, unaddressed things, things maybe half addressed, and then you, this outsider, are coming in to decide this is what we're doing at this year's family reunion. So, you know, you can you can run with the analogy all you want right. is like putting this these two together in the potato hop sack mm-hmm. race is like oh they hate each other. Oh my bad. I didn't know. Why do they hate each other? Right? Like and, and the, the the pictures in my mind go on and on as to just how problematic that really can be when it is exactly as you said issues folded up passed on in the form of a letter mm-hmm. anonymously with no hope for any real actual
1: reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So, how long were you there? A little over four years. Okay. Um, in my first year, right? This is this is like I'm this wide-eyed young. I wasn't like, you know, just out of high school young, but but you know, I think I was thirty, and so it was wide-eyed, young, full of energy. As I said, I had this int- this curious skill set. You know, I was thrilled about you know the congregation being as diverse as it was, and then I'm like smacked with this letter and the reality of some of the unhealth in the church. In that first year, in that first year, I had two of my staff members die, Mm. another staff member resign. And the church secretary, who was on paid staff, resigned. So, yeah, resigned. One of them stormed out unhealthily, and one of them resigned because she was moving back to the mainland, I think. And so that was my team, right? That was five of us. That was a worship pastor, a youth, um, secretary, essentially office assistant, um, and then, like, a family pastor. Two two passed away, and then two left. And here I am, this White kid from the mainland, with a lot of energy, inheriting someone else's family reunion. Exactly, <laughs> right. but
0: carrying into that family reunion this energy and an optimistic idea of I want to have this holistic, real, authentic communal experience. Yeah. I'm tired of fundraising, yeah. so let's cook. Let's cook this metaphorical meal up in a in a nice family unit that is a local congregation. Yeah. Oh. My My goodness. And to cap it off, uh, you probably lived in a parsonage
1: next door. (laughs) Bingo, right? Like, if you could only, if it could, could only one thing could make this worse, (laughs) right? Like, permanently put me on the church property. Now, here's what's so interesting, right? Is that, is that, is that there's such a thing as (laughs) parsonages? No, but if you took anybody from any other line of work, any other field, Right, as glamorous as it might be, like an NBA player, or as unglamorous as it might be, like being a you know a teacher during COVID or something like sure. that, right? Like, and you ask that person, you you put in their package. Oh, and by the way, you might want to read the fine print because it says you're gonna actually live at the stadium, yeah, or you're gonna live in your classroom, yeah, oh. like. No way, right? Like either you better 10x my salary and give me like nine months off a year. Seriously, right? but for whatever reason, it's perfectly acceptable and normative for churches, right? Like, it's it is the worst idea. <laughs> I can't remember what I said in our previous conversations. It's the worst idea since the coronavirus or something like that, right? It's the worst idea since the pande- since pandemic or infectious disease.
0: You can't, I mean, especially if you have a family and you're trying to have some sort of like sacred space in your home for, I don't know, nap time or or meals, right? I, I mean, I lived in a parsonage. I can't tell you how many times. One, one time I tracked it for the course of two weeks and I was so frustrated I had to stop. Yeah. Every day we had a different unannounced visitor who just needed into the building for reasons that... Half the time, I could have very easily Mm. said, you don't need in for that. That's silly. Mm. Or wait for someone else with the key. They'll be here in an hour. But I just wanted to track it one time. And and I would say at least four or five of them were during meal times where Mm. they expected. And they kept knocking. Mm. I had people that would go around to our backyard to see if kids were playing in the backyard to say, your mom or dad is not answering the front door. I need them to come and let me in the buildings. Maybe we're not answering for a reason. It's 6
1: p.m. Like, seriously? Oh. Yeah. I mean, there, there's two pieces there. There's two pieces to that that particular parsonage. One that was, I will own as all my fault. And the other, which was, it just was unforeseen. I did, I, I, there's no way we could have gotten around it. That, that made it exceptionally difficult. One, we'll start, we'll start with the one that's my fault, right? We... My wife and I had ongoing conversations in the last few places that we had lived to start intentional living arrangements, right? Intentional community, co-housing, whatever you want to call it. But for us, it was an intentional Christian community. I mean, we had, as a young family, even as just newlyweds, but then at this point we had a few kids. As a young family, we just we craved, like having a rhythm that we shared with other young families if nobody else you know where we where we could sort of both bear the weight of the, the mundane but also you know sort of pour into you know the the place the the places of insecurity and hurt and wound in our lives that it seems like you can only do if you're tracking closely in the rhythms of other people's lives right and that's not even to mention like sort of you know worshipping together and stuff but Just like to intricately weave our lives together with other people. This was a deep craving we both of us shared. And so each place and house we lived in before Hawaii, we had desired that and had conversations and were discerning those possibilities. And for various reasons, they didn't manifest. But so the idea of a parsonage for us registered on that radar, right? It's like we can be close. It's in a neighborhood We're within walking distance to the park. I don't have to waste time commuting. Like it checked all the boxes for convenience and to afford us the possibility of intentional living with people. Boy, were we we wrong, right? Like it just became a lack of boundaries and an abuse of of power, honestly, and leveraging against us and such. But the other thing, and you're going to love this. (laughs) The other thing that... Just put it over the top was that we facilitated a preschool at our school oh. or excuse me, at our church. So here we are educating our children basically at home. I'm working from home. We're living at home. I'm only going to bathroom at home at church. Like like 100% of my life is there. On these and three the, acres, right? Yeah. It's, I think it might have been shy of three acres, but basically three acres. And across our parking lot is a preschool of... 64 year olds oh my goodness five days a week
0: oh my goodness man
1: right like <laughs> the encounters the like with my kids in the preschools was a never-ending challenge the thing like just the sound like pollution would just drive anybody <laughs> mad right just mad yep. like like I'm do not condone torture under any circumstance ever. But you just get that on record. But I've got the greatest idea for a torture <laughs> technique, should somebody want one. Just handcuff them in the playground of a preschool. Dude, it's called the parsonage with a preschool. Oh
0: my goodness. Right?
1: So, yeah, I mean, it goes without saying, like, it was just, it. we went crazy, right? Like, and it almost felt like we took on the unhealth, right? Like, yeah. Of circumstance, of the, fa- the you know the family reunion, um, of our own just space, like just our mental space, our the sound space, this the domain of sound that we it's nice to cultivate in your own living room, was just owned by somebody else. It, and it se- it seems as you're talking about this, you took on all the burden of what would be
0: just like day to day business oriented. Issues with, with a, a building, right? Yeah. Like, none of that, I mean, it could have, I suppose, been connected to faith, community, you know, communal living, but so much of it was, at least for me too, so please, if it's not the same for you, it was just like, I'm a caretaker, I'm a mm-hmm. facility manager. Mm-hmm. It, it has little to do with me being a pastor. It's just convenience. I'm there, mm-hmm. but I also can't escape that building. That mm-hmm. building has this hold over me. But in, in the same way, in a really weird twist for me, it, it almost feels like you went into this place hoping for greater expectations of of you in, in your your family that were more holistic right like in in community driven yeah. but instead like segmented off over here to just be well you live there so do that and deal with this and and, and ha- so like you know cut some of the classic I don't know slights against young pastors the, the stereotypical thing is oh the expectations are ridiculous of a pastor mm-hmm. but I think maybe to put it more Succinctly to articulate it more clearly, the expectations that are not pastoral suck the life of you, suck the life out of you so much that when pastoral duty responsibility comes, you pretty much don't have much left in your emotional gas tank to give, because you've been this custodian, you've been the, the that's, a,
1: that's a perfect word for the caretaker, it.
0: Yeah. you've been the referee for four-year-olds mm-hmm. fighting, you've been bird, you you heard those little two kids screaming over the toy for an hour, so that when someone calls. Your patience is gone, right? Mm-hmm. Like at, at the end of the day, like these expectations which would have been above average maybe for a normal job, you would have welcomed wholeheartedly, but mm-hmm. it, it was taken away by just a myriad of like mundane stuff that I'm sure at the end of the day you're like, this is not
1: what I thought I was signing up for. No, the custodial demands of someone that lives on the property. Well, truthfully it's not only pastors that live on the property i think it's probably more accurate to say pastors of small churches mm-hmm. but you know it's sort of ramped up when when you live there obviously because you're more accessible you know um, the custodial demands of a small church that are put on the shoulders of the pastory of the pastory of the pastor is exactly you're exactly right in that it's it just saps like it sucks everything out of the pastor and then when and then which is you would think you'd be able to categorically separate that demand from like your creative brain, from your, you know, spiritual sensitivities, from your pastoral sensitivities, if you will. And the truth is like, you only have like a finite amount of energy. You have one emotional gas tank, right? And it's like you put out a fight, uh, you know, between four year olds that are, you know, hucking who knows what at each other, (laughs) you (laughs) you know, You know, you sign the new lease contract, which is sort of a business engagement, which could totally be delegated to somebody else or should be, right? And on you, you plunge a toilet, you know, and you sweep rocks off the parking lot so your kids don't chew up their knees when they fall off their skateboard. And before you know it's like you're planning a sermon at midnight. It's like, who has the creative capacity or just the sensitivity to the work of the Spirit to, to write a sermon under those circumstances, you know? But what's really interesting when I think back about that time is how all of the challenging things for said transplant to the islands were never hard. Right? Like, like the, I, I never experienced an ounce of racism or what could ease, easily be considered racism, right? Um, which is often just sort of called accountability, but whatever. That's a whole <laughs> other conversation, right? Like, I never experienced an ounce. Well, part of that is just because I didn't... Like, I went with an, with an you know more of a penchant to listen and to shut my mouth, right? Which it's amazing how far that gets you cross-culturally. Instead <laughs> you just of being, shut up. Instead of you know I mean? being the culture warrior, yeah, yeah, right? And just, and just learn. And it's like we were so warmly welcomed into that local neighborhood and into the Polynesian community or into the Samoan Tongan, and Tongan community. But here it was all this other stuff, right, that just swamped me. Right? And I was just toast. And I knew quick, quickly. I mean, I knew three months in this i'm gonna get toasted right my response though was equally problematic as it was helpful my response was well then maybe then i can either a like reverse this train which is like a hilarious sort of metaphor anyways because trains don't obviously reverse right or at least not quickly right um which wasn't going to happen you learn that really quickly you can't Subplant, you know, the fifty unhealthy people with fifty, you know, really eager people that are all in, you know, what I no mean? matter how young and energetic yeah, you are, exactly. Um, or I was going to take the resources of the church, which this is a unique, unique part of my experience. Is the church was financially healthy. Huh. Well, there's a whole backstory there. The church had the potential when I got there to be financially healthy, so very quickly it got there, um, um, which. In a way, it goes back to the fundraising bit, but whatever. Um, And so I was going to build a team and just redirect, just earmark those resources, like document the earmarks. So legally, this money, these resources were bound and they could only go towards missional work, right? So, uh, I recently looked back at that first budget, that first year when I I, was a senior pastor. And I think something like 70% of our resources were designated for missional work, right? So outside and off the building, which is a phenomenal amount, which is, but anyhow, you know, so we went that way. So I went that way, I was like, that's it, that's the answer, right? Like we're not gonna flip this train around, there's no U-turn, so we're just gonna- Lean in. Yeah, and we're gonna gonna build tracks that just lead a totally different direction. You know, there's a whole long conversation to be had about what became of that, but the short of it is, is goes, harkens back to the custodial responsibilities. Here, I'm doing way too much, and then I try to add way too much. Sure. And it's like my wife warned me. She's like, "You're gonna, you're gonna die. You're gonna short circuit or peter out or putter out or whatever." And sure enough, it's like the you know the calendar wins eventually, and there's only so many hours, and you only have so much energy. Like I said, and you know, after three or four years, I was just like, "Can't do it anymore." I mean, because all it takes is
0: one little, like, something happened on the news, and someone has a really intense opinion about a thing, and then, and, oh, wait, I don't like this Ryan guy, yeah. and, and you don't even have the bandwidth anymore to try to be pastoral in those moments. So you were there four years? Four years, plus
1: maybe a little change, but yeah, four years.
0: And, oh, man, you said this once to me in, in person, uh, and it it really echoed within my my brain for longer than I don't know if it should have been longer than that or not I guess I'm not gonna put some quantitative statement on that but like you had told me that sometimes you experience hurts you experience things in churches you experience things in ministry and leadership that you can't unexperience because mm-hmm. they're so profound good and bad but mm-hmm. I think we were particularly talking about the fact that you can experience things that you can't ever unknow mm-hmm. in in a negative way and it forces you to make some serious decisions It forces you to question what you're doing with your time, going back to sort of the intentionality, meaningfulness of the work you're trying to do with your life. But it forces you to say, hey, something's gotta give. Mm -hmm. I gotta do something different. So after four years, Deuce is (laughs) Hawaii?
1: After four years, I resigned, um, fully aware that if I've made decisions differently early on, that I'd probably still be riding that train, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, because culturally speaking I think it was a remarkably good fit despite whether the board knew, like actually saw that in advance um, as much as it depended on you though yeah and and it just in that in that area that, that we were on the big island which is unique in itself but it's dr- drastically different than sort of urban Honolulu on Oahu anyhow it just the culturally speaking and you know, in terms of um cost of living and stuff, it just made sense for our family there. We could have lasted. But anyhow, at some point I just had to reckon with the fact that I might had become the most unhealthy person in the church. Oh no. Right? Um and, and I think it being was Being aware of that too, like yeah, self awareness. Yeah, and I it my, it was obvious to my wife. Um and she had made some strong suggestions about how we could continue on, right? Like, I put none of this on her, like, pulling the plug on us and it and the whole, you know, church and ministry. But, it, you know, it's 100% on my shoulders. And when I looked in the mirror, it's like, I've done damage to myself by saying yes or no to certain things that I should have said the opposite to. I didn't address all these things early on. Anyhow, and... And and I lived in a parsonage, so obviously, you know. Um, and so I actually didn't move from there to another church, which is the common kind of um, attempt to address hurts and unhaired. or to avoid, just yeah. to practice avoidance. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. Well, yeah, I'm going to ask you. I'm yeah. going
0: to ask you permission to do something here, yeah. if it's okay. This this feels like. This feels like a two-part episode. <laughs> it feels like we're going to... I mean, I've never done it in person, so let's just blame me. But with your permission, we're going to do a part two to this. Is that cool with you?
1: I'm, I'm comfortable with that. So we're leaving it at this. <laughs> uh,
0: Ryan leaves Hawaii, but he doesn't necessarily jump right into another church, which might be a pretty common thing. Maybe more common than people actually are aware of that mm-hmm. are just lay people. That pastors will go from a place where they got hurt, where they got... You know, they learn lessons. They could have done things better themselves, obviously, but there's some deep-seated things that happened. And maybe because of avoidance and the need to, to make money, right, yeah. to do oh, something, sure. they, they jump into another ministry just just a, a couple months after leaving something that was soul-crushing mm-hmm. and life-taking. Yeah. So we're going to leave it at Brian didn't do that and what he <laughs> did next is going to be an interesting shift from the normal pastoral trajectory, I would say. Mm -hmm. And we'll we'll get to something, too. I'm going to just drop this phrase that was part of the whole, okay, what is Ryan doing? What is this about? We're going to get to this idea of having an ecumenical engine, right? Because that's a word you said. And I always say, hashtag, or not hashtag, TM Ryan, right? Like a copyright... Ryan Fassani, Ecumenical Engine Engineer. That's what he's doing. He's engineering ec- <laughs> Ecumenical engines up in Bellingham. So we're gonna get to that in part two. Does that does that sound fair? Can we okay. do that? That sounds great. All right, let's do. So hey, this has been part one with with Ryan Fassani, um, the pastor who does some stuff in Bellingham that we're yet to figure out. But this has been his story leading up to some pretty momentous moments in his life that set the course for why he is doing what mm-hmm. he's doing now. So check out part two. It'll be dropping, I don't know, soon. Don't miss it.